Well, it's wonderful to be with you. My name is Andy Young. I am the church planting minister of Oxford Presbyterian Church, and I have the privilege of ministering God's words to you now. I invite you to stand if you're able to, and I'm going to read from God's word and from the whole of the chapter of Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12. We're going to break into the narrative of Acts, but it's worth noting that a watershed moment has just happened in the flow of the story of Acts. The first Gentile has believed. Cornelius and his family believe and are baptized. And just after this chapter, the first missionary Movement starts to happen. Paul is sent out by the church. But in between those two key moments in world history, the first Gentiles becoming Christians and the first missionary movement, we read Acts 12. We read of the powers of our world exerting their strength to try to crush what God is doing. But we also see how God, through the very efforts of his enemies uses those same efforts and weakness of his people to further his own purposes. Let's hear from God's word in Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he'd seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. And a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together And were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. 
Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of the Lord stands Do be seated. I bring greetings to you from Oxford, United Kingdom, and from Oxford Presbyterian Church. I'm immensely thankful to Jordan and to Mark uh, uh, for inviting me, and it's a wonderful privilege to be with you. Many of you will have heard of the name of John Wesley. John Wesley, he lived from 1703 to 1791. He was the founder of the Methodist Church. He was a great preacher. He went on many preaching tours. In fact, he, he, was, he came to the United States of America and preached over here. And yet, despite the preaching, and despite all that he accomplished, he often faced great opposition. We have some extracts of his diary on one of those preaching tours, and I'm going to read a few extracts to you, which will give you an insight into some of the opposition that he faced. Sunday morning, May 5th, he writes, preached in St. Anne's, the name of the church, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday evening, May the 5th, preached in St. John's, the deacon said, get out and stay out. Next week, Sunday morning, May 12th, preached in St. Jude's, he writes, can't go back there either. Sunday morning, the next week, May 19th, preached in, he says, St. Somebody Else's, he must have forgotten the name of the church, deacons called a special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday evening of the same Sunday, May 19th, preached on the street, Kicked off the street. Sunday morning, May 26th, preached in a meadow. Chased out of the meadow as a bull was turned loose during the service. You're not going to turn a bull loose, see you, Mark, this morning. I hope not. Sunday morning, June 2nd, preached out at the edge of the town, kicked off the highway. He preached. He gave his life to declaring the truth of God. And wherever he did it, he faced opposition. Not once, not twice, not three times, but repeatedly and frequently. His ministry was marked by rejection, by opposition. And this is the reality, isn't it, of God's truth. God's truth, when it is declared, it will elicit a response. It will evince a response from those who hear it. 
And one of those responses, more often than not, will be open opposition, open persecution, and even hatred. This is what we see in Acts 12. As I said before we read God's words and we read this chapter, this chapter in Acts 12 comes at a pivotal, crucial, watershed moment in the life of the church. We should be hanging on the edge of the words of these passages. We should be sitting on the edge of our seats as we read these chapters in God's word. Because in chapter 10 and in chapter 11, the gospel, for the first time, as had been promised to Abraham thousands of years earlier, in your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It begins to come to pass. Cornelius, a non-Jew, a non-ethnic Jew, a Gentile, an outcast, comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And he and his family are baptized. And then what happens? Acts 12 happens. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 13, they're going to send Paul on his first missionary journey. We see Luke and the Holy Spirit through Luke is, is trying to give us a salutary lesson. That yes, the gospel will grow. Yes, God will bless. Yes, Jesus reigns and he is building his kingdom. But it will come at a cost. The world will hate us. And we will face opposition. Acts 12 shows the church at its weakest. Yeah, and I'm going to bring this out. The church is at its weakest. This is not some kind of alpha male church, you know, kind of wrestling bears, felling trees, bristling with muscles, okay? This is a church that is weak and hard-pressed and struggling to survive. And yet, even then, even then, what do we see? God's power is shown, not through the great things of this world, not through the strong things, not through the great things. God's power is thrown, is shown even better when the church is at its weakest. When it's on its knees, God shows that through his power, even when the church is weak, he will accomplish his purposes. Notice with me three things from this chapter. And here's the first one. Notice the illusion of Herod's power. The illusion of Herod's power. Now at first blush, as you read chapter 12, what we're presented with is a king, a man who has considerable power, privilege, and prestige. He can imprison people on a whim. He can extinguish their lives if he wishes so. He does it to James, one of the three inner circles of Jesus Christ's closest disciples. He takes him out, and almost certainly his plan is to take Peter out as well. We read it at the end. He can cause whole regions to bow before him. Tyre and Sidon were dependent on Herod for their grain supply. And at a whim, he can switch it off. And they have to come begging. Otherwise, they'll starve to death. He is the Vladimir Putin of his day. That's who he is. Not only that, do you notice he wears royal robes? And he's got a throne? When we read that, you're supposed to kind of go, ooh, wow, the big man's in town. He's a great man, isn't he? He can deliver these wonderful speeches. He has people bowing before him as a God. He appears, doesn't he? The passage doesn't hide this from us. He appears 
impressive, strong, and powerful. Not just that, that power is, is exerted against the church. The power, he flexes the muscle of his power at a, at a particular target. And the target is you and me. We read verse 1, violent hands are laid on some who belong to the church. We read verse 2, that James, the brother of John, is killed. We read verse 3, Peter is arrested. You see what he's doing? This, this man of considerable power is targeting the church. And at first glance, this is what he appears. You know, you read, you've got to read Scripture on a number of levels. And at the first level, Herod is a man of power. He is to be feared. He's hurting the church. Now, this is, we just got to pause here just for a brief moment and, and recognize the truth of this. We're going to see in just a moment that this power is actually illusory, that he actually doesn't have any power. And yet, in a sense, he does. The enemies of Christ can and will hurt God's people. You know, the church is being persecuted today. We have an organization in the United Kingdom. Look up the website. They're a fantastic organization. It's called Open Doors. Open Doors. They, they seek to help and encourage and inform the Christian church about the persecuted church. Did you know that they estimated, and they do this on purpose, they, try to, they, they, they estimate on a conservative level so as not to inflate the numbers. They estimated that in 2022, almost 6,000 Christians were martyred across the world. Did you know that 5,100 of them were in Nigeria? A fifth, sorry, my math is, my math is terrible, five-sixths of the Christians being killed across our world or in Nigeria. Are we praying for Nigeria? If you, if, if in Nigeria, they read Acts 12 and they see that the, the, the enemies of Christ have some power. And we need to acknowledge this, don't we? And yet we've also got to look deeper. Because this power, as Luke is presenting it, is actually illusory. At first blush, he's a man of power. At first glance, he can hurt the church. But look what else happens. Peter actually escapes, doesn't he? Peter escapes miraculously. Herod has to kill the guards out of desperation instead of killing Peter. And at the very moment, at the very climax, at the very pinnacle of his power and authority as he's given this speech and he's got the whole region of Tower and Sidon quaking in their boots because of him, what happens? An angel strikes him down and the worms eat him. It's a, pa a power that's illusory. It's a power that's apparent. It's a power that is temporary. And Acts 12 is an expose. It's a critique it's encouraging us to, yes, on the one hand, recognize that the enemies of Christ will be powerful in a sense, but in reality, on a much more fundamental level, they have no power because true power doesn't lie with men and women and children. Let me ask you this question. When you drove to church this morning, did you pass any temples devoted to the worship of Caesar? Are there any in Dallas and in McKinney? There aren't any in the United Kingdom. Did you, did you pass people gathering around the temple of Caesar to sing the praises of Caesar? It wasn't that long ago, 2,000 years ago, that that's what people would do. Caesar was regarded as a god. 
And they worshipped him. Now I can't even remember how to spell his name. I always get the E and the A the wrong way around. Because he's a nobody. He had his day. He rose and people worshipped him. He's a god. He's not anymore. No one even thinks about him. And that's what's happening here to Herod. This is a critique. A critique of this world's power. It appears big. It appears impressive. But in reality, it is not. I remember as a child being quite interested in, in the Middle East and what what was happening in Iraq and Iran. You remember Saddam Hussein? Do you know Saddam Hussein used to pay or force his own people at state functions to arrive and wave the flags of the country and cheer his name? So when, when the Western cameras came to watch him open the new state building of this, that, and the other, it looked incredibly impressive. It looked like there were thousands of people gathered worshiping him and thanking him and so happy with his wonderful reign. Until he fell from grace. And where were the people? No one, not one stood up for him. They disappeared. We actually sang something similar in Psalm 20 just now. But let me read to you just some words from Psalm Psalm 146. What does Psalm 146 say? It says this. Verse 3. Put not your trust in princes. In a son of man in whom there is no salvation, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Who are you trusting? Who are you putting your trust in? Well, let me put it another way. Who are you fearing? See, as Christians, we we do fear, don't we? I do. I'm scared all the time. You put on your news. You see what's going on in the world, the rise of Islam, the, the, the rise of this almost seemingly unstoppable progressivism that's going from mad to crazy to worse. How, and we could tremble in our boots, but what we need to remember is they have no power. They may have their day. God is the one who's all-powerful. He's the one who lasts. Put not your trust in princes. That's what Luke is teaching us as God's people. Who are you trusting in? Young people, let me ask you. It's wonderful to see you. Our world will bombard you with options to trust in. And you know the greatest? You know the one that's the juiciest that's right in front of you right now? Trust in yourself. Trust in yourself. You're worth it. You've got it. You've got this. It's all about you. It's, the, it's a lie from the pit of hell. That's the, the last thing you should trust in is you. <laughs> Stand in front of the mirror and go, hey, Andy, you're great. It's all on you today. Now I can go back to bed. <laughs> if it's all on me, there is no hope. And the same for you. Who are you trusting in? Don't trust in the powers of this world. Don't trust in the passing ideologies of our age. Trust in God and in him, him alone, the illusory power of Herod. Secondly, would you notice with me the importance of the church's prayer? The importance of the church's prayer. What does the church do in response to this outbreak of opposition? What do they do? Isn't it amazing? They do one thing in this passage. One thing. The church do nothing except this. They're not recorded doing anything at all. They're almost entirely passive, the church. What do they do? We read in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer The hymn was made to God by the church. And we read in verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and 
were praying. What's the church's response to an onslaught from the evil one and to our enemies? What, what's the weapons of our warfare? We've got this. We pray. <laughs> That's what we do. We pray. And, and notice, notice a few things about the way they pray. And this is, just, this is so simple. It's going to be so, almost embarrassing. You're going to think, you brought Andy Young from Oxford to tell us this? But I, I, it's so simple, but it's so profound. We, we, we have to recover this. Notice who they pray to. An earnest prayer was made for, was made for him, was made to Mary? No. To Peter, the Pope? No. To the saints? To you and me? No. Who do they pray to? They pray to God. Did you know when you pray, whether you're on your own, in your home, or you're on your way to work, or even better, you're gathered on a Sunday with God's people or with God's people at a prayer meeting or with your family. Did you know what's happening? Did, did you know what's happening when you pray? Did you? You're getting an audience with the living God. We've got this phrase, and it's a beautiful phrase. We call it, we call it the throne room of grace. When you pray, you come. I, I, I will never have access to King Charles, but I've got access to the King of Kings when I pray. That's what prayer is. It's an audience with him. It's an expression of our living relationship and dependence on him. As you read chapter 12, you could be thinking, don't you have a little bit extra? You just pray. But if you'd asked Luke that, he'd say, you don't need anything extra. <laughs> because when you pray, you have this, this audience with God and he hears you and he answers you. Prayer is a means of grace by which we throw ourselves on him. We say, I can't, but you can. I'm weak, but you're strong. And that's why they pray. And you notice as well, another detail, they're praying together in verse 12. They're having this, this all-night prayer meeting. Don't get me wrong, individual prayer is important. Family prayers are vital. But they're praying together. As a church, you know, one of the most important things you do in your whole week, you've just done. Did you know that? Did it hit you? When your minister was leading you in prayer. Isn't it fascinating? Paul, uh, in prison, writes 1 Timothy. And he's passing the baton on to this, this protege. And as he's passing the baton on, as he sees the end of his ministry and the end of his life, he writes this manual for church worship in 1 Timothy. And what's the first thing he talks about? Prayer in 1 Timothy 2. Prayer. Because he sees prayer as, as absolutely essential to the life of the church. Because it is when we pray, we bring all our weaknesses and we have access to the King of Kings. And the Lord of Lords. They're praying earnestly as well, aren't they? This is no mere formality. They're imploring. They're beseeching. Their affections were engaged. This is not just going through the motions. They pray like the psalmist do. Bearing their all, all their need, all their anxiety before God. And they clearly prioritize prayer, don't they? It's nighttime and they're still praying. Now I'm not, don't worry, I'm not giving sanction to your elders to call an all-night prayer meeting tonight. But what would you do if your minister was in prison for preaching the gospel next week? What would you do? 
You're going to wring your hands and phone up your friends and get on WhatsApp? What do we do? This is what you do. You call a prayer meeting. And you prioritize it. And yes, it might be three in the morning. But you've got to cry out to God. You've got to call on him. You know, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, he wrote many books, actually. And he once wrote a book, a short little book, on prayer. And it's inventively entitled, Prayer. On the very first page of that book, he says this. There is much to be done after we have prayed. But there's nothing to be done until we have prayed. Prayer is not an excuse for inactivity. But activity can become an excuse to not pray. And this is what we're seeing here. The one thing we must do as a church, the one thing God would have us do, is to pray together. Can I encourage you, Redeemer McKinney, be a praying church. You already are, clearly. But continue and grow in that expression of devotion to be praying to your God, to be calling on him, to love coming together above everything else in worship and seeking that audience with God, to put before him everything you're doing, everything you are, all the life of your church, the ministry of the word. God would have us pray. We've seen the illusion of Herod's power and the importance of the church's prayer. Thirdly and finally, notice the immutability of God's purpose. Now, you might be sitting there going, immutability, what's that? That sounds like a nasty disease you need to go to the doctors and get some cream for. No, immutability is a fancy theological word that means that God is unchangeable. He's unchangeable. He doesn't change. Nothing changes him. He remains the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He does what he pleases, and his purposes are immutable. When God decides to do something, nothing, nothing, and nothing in the whole of the universe can stop him. Nothing can. Not even the uh, onslaught of the enemy or the weakness of the church. He will get done what he intends to do. In other words, he is sovereign. He is the sovereign ruler of all. Nothing can stand against him. And this is what we see finally in this passage. We've seen the illusion of Herod's power, the importance of the church's prayer. But most of all, we've got to see the immutability, the sovereignty, the unchangeableness of God's purpose. We see this in some of the details. We see it in, in the details of Peter's deliverance from prison. Did you notice just a few of the details with me? Verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night. Now this is beautiful. Buckle up and get ready. On that very night. Did you know God's timing is exquisitely perfect? It is exquisitely perfect. He is never late. Now, from our perspective, sometimes it feels like he's late. You know, Peter could have gone, hey, could you come in the afternoon? <laughs> you know, I've been in this prison thinking what's going on. Tomorrow I'm going to get executed. Couldn't you come a little bit earlier? No, God's timing is always perfect. And who does he send? He sends his, his angel, his messenger, his representative. How did this angel get in the cell? I don't know. How did the, the, the chains fall off and the gates open? And where's this light coming from? It's God. That's what it is. God, through his messenger, has stepped into this issue and is at work. 
Verse 10, the iron gate opens of its own accord. And in verse 11, Peter sums it up. He's kind of in this reverie, this daze. And quoting from Exodus 18, verse 4, he says, The Lord has rescued me. In fact, just a quick tangent. Almost certainly, Luke here has in the background the crossing of the Red Sea. What you've got here is the crossing of the Red Sea in miniature. Okay, you've got a light. You've got an escape. You've got the pathway opening up. Peter is having his own personal Red Sea crossing. And the point is, we're supposed to remember it. The Red Sea crossing, the deliverance from Egypt, is the, the most important salvation story in the Old Testament. And God is stepping into this issue and saying, I still reign. I'm still in control. Just as I delivered my people from Egypt, I'm delivering Peter. But also, did you notice, it's not just in the details, it's, in, it's despite the weakness. Now, did you know when you read the Bible sometimes, you're supposed to laugh out loud? Did you know that? There, there are times when you read the Bible when it's, it's comedic on purpose because it makes a point. It's like Elijah on Mount Carmel. You know the story? And our Bible translations anesthetize us from the visceral brutality and even crudeness, what we call in in the UK toilet humor. Okay, I'm going to paraphrase it. Don't worry, I'm not going to be impolite in present society. But you know what what Elijah does? He's there, single prophet. There's 400 priests of Baal. And what are the priests of Baal doing? They're cutting themselves and they're crying out to their Baals, come down, send down fire on the sacrifice. And you know what Elijah does? He starts poking fun. He says, hey, you better... um, you better speak up, shout a bit louder, because your deities, they're in the restroom and they're otherwise engaged. You need to shout louder. He's mocking them. He's saying, see how inept your gods are. It's, com- it's comedy. And we've got this here as well in this passage. Did you notice that Peter thinks he's in a dream and the angel has to whack him on the head to wake him up? He doesn't have to do that. He has to give him childlike instructions. Did you see that? Now, anyone who's got children or grandchildren, you know the deal, okay? Some of you will have experienced this this morning. You're running a little bit late to church, and there's your little Jimmy, okay? He hasn't got his shoes on, hasn't got his coat on, he hasn't got a belt to do his trousers up, and you're like, okay, let's get you dressed, okay? Put your shoes on. No, that's the wrong shoe. That's the wrong way around. I'll do the laces for you, okay? Put your coat on. No, not on your head. Um, Okay, that's what happens, isn't it? And you have to step in and give childlike instructions. That's what happens here in these verses. Pick up your coat, Peter. Put on your shoes, Peter. Follow me, Peter. Why? Because we're being shown that the church is weak. He can't even believe what's happening. Do you notice what happened with Rhoda? What happened with Rhoda? By the way, isn't it beautiful we get given a name? Isn't that beautiful? Did you know our God knows every single one of his children by name? By name and here. Rhoda, she does nothing. All she does is open. Well, she doesn't open the door. But she's named for the whole of history. We're sitting here talking about Rhoda because she matters to God. They're there praying for the release of Peter. Rhoda, go get the door. She forgets to open it. She runs back. I mean, it's funny. And then when she goes in, they're there praying, dear Lord, would you deliver Peter from prison? Rhoda bursts in. Hey, you won't believe it. Peter's at the door. Rhoda, will you be quiet? We're praying here. We're praying for the deliverance of Peter. Like, come on, get on with it. And their prayers are being answered. They don't even believe the prayers they're praying. They're that weak. And yet God shows his power. See how weak the church is. 
childlike, infantile. They have to be led by the hand. And yet it is through that weakness that God is showing the immutability of his purposes. What a wonderful message at the heart of this chapter. Our God uses the weak things. Our God uses the weak things to bring to shame the wise and the powerful so that he would be glorified. And that's encouraging for us, isn't it? You know, I don't know if you've heard of the Formula One race, racing driver. You into Formula One over here? Lewis Hamilton, Formula One racing driver. Can you imagine Lewis Hamilton turning up at Silverstone, which is the British Grand Prix racing track? And he turns up, and there's all the other teams with their $300 million cars and hundreds of employees and technicians behind that car to, to uh, make it work and to win the race. And Lewis Hamilton rocks up at the British Grand Prix at Silverstone in my VW Sharon. Two liter diesel, naught to 60 in 24 hours. <laughs> Can you imagine? You imagine if he turned up, he'd be, he'd be a laughing stop. Look at you, Lewis. How are you gonna compete using that beat up car that Andy Young pretends gets him from A to B? But can you imagine the look on their faces if he won? Can you imagine as he sails over the finish line and everyone's coming, eating his dust behind him? Can you imagine what they'd say? They'd say, you're some racing driver. But that's what's going on here. God isn't racing in a Formula One racing car. He's racing with you. And you're my beat up VW Sharon nought to 60 in 24 hours. But that doesn't stop God. He can still use it. He can still use you. And look what happens at the end. Isn't this wonderful? Verse 24, this is a repeated refrain in Acts at vital moments. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod can deliver this great speech, but nothing can get in the way of God's word. His purposes are immutable. Do you know, I sometimes think we should, we should give out crash helmets uh, for people who come to church. You know why? Because we're about to interface with the, the living, holy God. But also, we just, the word of God is so powerful that as it's preached and as it's spread and as it's gossiped and as it's told, it can, it can turn lives around. It's like Martin Luther once said when he was asked, how did you build the Reformation? What did you do? And he said in his typical wit, well, I just, I just drank beer and played Skittles. But the word of God did everything else. And that's what we see here when the word of God is unleashed and preached and taught. It is effective and nothing can stand against it. The illusion of Herod's power, the importance of the church's prayer, the immutability of God's purpose. What am I trying to teach you as I conclude? Really, really what the whole message of the Bible is. And did you know you can sum up the whole message of the Bible in two words? You know what it is? Jesus wins. That's it. <laughs> they throw their best against him. They exert their strongest. And yet it doesn't work. Jesus wins despite persecution, despite imprisonment, despite even death. The church grows and advances. I want you to be encouraged this morning. Our God reigns and he still reigns. And our God rules and he still rules. And our God still uses the weak things. And don't be sitting there thinking, well, he, he kind of puts up with us. 
No, no, he loves using our weakness. When you come to God with your nothing, he can do everything. It's actually a problem if it's the other way around. He can't use you. He can't, there's nothing he can do with you if you come going, look at me, God. I got something for you. It's when we come broken, beaten, bruised, battered. It's at that very point that God can magnify his glory and show his power. Just a final illustration, if you'd bear with me. I don't know if you've heard of the Polish Prime Minister Ignacy Paderewski. He wasn't just a Polish Prime Minister. He was also a concert pianist. He was a world-renowned pianist. And one day, a young mum who was trying to encourage her seven-year-old son to take up the piano. She'd paid for piano lessons. She wanted to inspire him, so she bought tickets, front row seats, at a Paderewski concert. So she turned up early with her young son, and they got settled on the front row. And she looked around, she saw someone she knew, and she started talking to her. her. And the concert hall filled up. And suddenly, as she was talking, everything went into a hush. And as she looked up to her horror, she saw her seven-year-old son, who had made his way round behind the stage, come up and walk to the Steinway Grand Piano, sit himself up on it, completely oblivious of the thousands gathered, and bash out, twinkle, twinkle, little star. (laughs) But before she could do anything about it, Paderewski himself came onto the stage. And he went over to this child. It's a true story. And he whispered to him, don't stop. Keep playing. And he reached his left hand round. And he started playing a bass line to Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And then a few bars later, he reached his right hand round as this, this boy has gone. And he put his right hand round and he improvised a beautiful harmony and melody to twinkle little, twinkle little Star. And for the next four or five minutes, that audience were wowed by the best rendition of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star they'd ever heard. Do you know that's what God does with us? You have to forgive me, I'm a Welshman. But that's what God does with us. All Jordan Stoner's God is a twinkle, twinkle little star. Did you know that? No offense, brother. <laughs> and I've got less. That's what, when, you, when I stand up in the pulpit, that's all I've got. I've got twinkle, twinkle little stars for you. But Jesus Christ comes and puts his arms around us. And he takes the really the quite silly efforts of, of his people, and he wows the world. That's what our God is about, and that's what's happening in Acts 12. God's power through the church's weakness. You know, uh, John Wesley's diary carried on. Sunday morning, June 2nd, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday evening, June 2nd, afternoon, preached in a pasture. 10,000 people came out to hear me. Failure, 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 persecution, opposition, failure, persecution, opposition, failure, 10,000 hear the gospel. That's the way our God works. Be encouraged that in your weakness, our God will show his strength. And may he do that here to the amazement of his enemies. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are strong. You are powerful. We are weak. Oh, Lord, our God. 
encourage us, we pray. Encourage this church. Encourage Redeemer McKinney Presbyterian Church. Bless all that they do, that the ministry of your word, the administration of the sacraments, the gathering for prayer, and much else beside would be blessed of you, that you would do things that would amaze even them, that you would answer prayers that they don't even believe in when they're praying them, and that you would be honored and glorified. Build your church so that one day in the new heavens and new earth, we will all gather and glorify you for all eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.